All right. So I'm going to try to uh, do the, take a baton pass here. Already going well. <laughs> Pastor Dan uh, in July walked us through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to take us into the New Testament book, the Acts of the Apostles. So, oh, here you go. Let me know if I come alive again. So uh, in the New Testament times, socially, there's basically two groups of people. Okay. Jews and the Gentiles. And if you're not familiar with the word Gentiles, then I think we could say the Jews and everybody else. That's pretty much how they saw the world of the New Testament times. Um, so that's, you know, got a little bit of racism going on. In fact, a lot. Uh, their world had uh, powerful racial forces going on. L- uh, listen to what uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, writes. These are stories they used to tell about each other back then. Many Jews could tell stories about the wicked things that Gentiles got up to. One of the reasons some Jews gave for not going into Gentile houses and eating with them was that their houses were polluted because Gentiles forced their women folk to have abortions and then put the dead fetuses down the drains or under the floorboards. What a wicked story to be telling about other people. But then, like now, racism cuts both ways. In the same sort of way, some Gentiles were taught that Jews were stuck-up, unsociable people because they wouldn't eat pork, which was the cheapest meat available in most places, because they insisted on having a day off work each week. Those stuck-up people, Romans worked seven days a week, Jews only six. And because they wouldn't join in with normal social activities like parties which went on around pagan temples and great games which celebrated the gods or sometimes the emperors. A particularly interesting slur was that Jewish people robbed pagan temples, presumably because since they didn't regard the pagan divinities as real, nobody actually owned what was in their shrines, so they may as well help themselves. Powerful forces dividing races in New Testament times. So it's into that world we go when we begin in Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army official named Cornelius, who was captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man. As was everyone in his household, he gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. The angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner, who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened, and he sent them off to Joppa to find Simon Peter, who is staying with the other Simon. That's how you know the Bible's not made up. No author would give two characters the same name like that. All right, so Cornelius is close to God. He's perhaps closer than any soldier in the Roman army has ever been. He prays to God. He gives to the poor. All the Jews in the town that he lives in love him. He's already made all sorts of changes in his life to be the one God's choosing for this moment. He's pretty already upside down. 
compared to most Gentiles, particularly Roman soldiers of his day. And yet it still isn't quite enough yet. Still one thing remains for him to hear and acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior of the world. That's what's being set up here. That's why he's supposed to go hear from the Apostle Peter. Cornelius, the centurion, is not going to meet the Apostle Peter. So the Apostle Peter can say, hey, brah, I'm okay. You're okay. Let's start getting along from now on. This is going to be more than just an exchange of tolerance between races. Cornelius is being called to hear that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus, whom the Romans, remember, helped execute. This is the hard thing about the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, and it has this hard part. It's hard now. It was hard then. That when Jesus comes and turns everything upside down, everyone involved gets brought down a peg or two. And that's hard. The Jews in this story lose the privilege of being God's one and only chosen people as God now uses Jesus to give himself to the whole world. And this whole world must acknowledge the Jewish Messiah as Savior of the whole world. Oh, man. We've already got all these great gods. We've spent bazillions making these magnificent temples to Egyptian gods and Sumerian gods and Roman gods. Can't we just keep our local gods and just call it good? Nope. And so the servants of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, they arrive at a house where the apostle Peter, a devout Jew and a follower of Jesus, is staying in the city of Joppa. And we pick up there in verse 9. The next day, Cornelius' messengers were nearing town. Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. And then the voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Uh Uh-oh. That's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. See, the Old Testament scriptures are filled with these very strict laws about everything that Jews can eat and can't eat. And it also includes hints at the people that they can eat with and cannot eat with. And Peter has just said he has no intention of ever breaking any of these Jewish laws. He may be hungry on the roof, but he ain't that hungry. Now, this meeting that's trying to happen, it's obviously the will of God. This guy's having a vision, and this guy's having a vision, and they're traveling toward one another. And yet this meeting may just be one big mess looking for a place to happen because what's trying to happen here is so upside down from how both these people already understand the world. God may be trying to turn something upside down here that's just been stuck this way for too long now. Our world also has these hopeless upside down relationships. I can think of the racial divides in our own country. I missed the late 60s. I wasn't quite here yet. Some of you experienced all that. I know that it was terrible. But for my lifetime... 
Racial divides are worse now than they have been since I was a little kid. It was, seemed like it was getting better, and now it's not. I also look sometimes at the hateful discussions that happen on Facebook and Twitter in our own congregation. Almost always around something to do with politics. And I observe in those posts how people don't even think of themselves as liberal or conservative anymore. People don't even think of themselves that way. I'm not liberal. I don't have a point of view. I'm just right. I'm not conservative. That's not just a way of seeing the world. I'm just right. I'm just uh, like a real follower of Jesus. And, And you're just not post. And when I see that we've sunk to that level of disagreeing with one another, I think, what can heal that? What can turn that upside down? Even more painful than that, of course, is the divides that crop up in our own families. Right? That's where the hurts are the worst. And so many hurts can accumulate in families, and they go so deep, and they go on so long, and the betrayal feels so complete because they're your family. They ought to know you better. They ought to love you more. They ought to treat you better, and yet it seems they choose not to. Can those types of divides be healed? I doubt it. And how is anyone ever going to get to a place where they can say, you know what, I was wrong? Who says that anymore? I was wrong. And why? You only have to see each other on the holidays, maybe. So everybody can just kind of go on and do what they've been doing. I've said it uh, before, told stories, you know, about when I was a little kid, how my house wasn't the greatest place to grow up in. But I want to tell you this morning that many times I was the source of terror in our house. I am five years older than my brother, and I, uh, I treated him terribly. Now, at this point, somebody wants to come up after service and say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. All siblings fight. But I, I'm telling you that I took verbal and physical abuse to a new level. I could tell you what happened, but frankly, I'm embarrassed, and I'm not so sure those stories are things people want to hear in this setting anymore. Let's just say it was bad. Okay, it was really bad. And after becoming a follower of Jesus, I began to reflect on those abusive patterns, and I began to regret it deeply, even while some of it was still happening. And at last, God brought me to a place where I didn't just want to stop. I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back and make amends. I wanted to go back and apologize. My brother and I were in college by this time, and we had not really spoken in a year. So I went to a mutual friend, and I said, I really want to confess my sins. I want to apologize to my brother. My mutual friend told me, I've already spoken to him about this, and he has told me, he would not accept an apology from you even if you gave one. He never wants to speak to you again. Of course, I was heartbroken. I'd ruined everything. Apparently forever. It didn't seem as though what was obviously God's will that someone confess and ask for forgiveness and be forgiven, it didn't seem like any of that was going to happen in this situation. God might 
be trying to turn something upside down that's just been stuck this way for too long. Back in our scriptures, Peter, the devout Jew and follower of Jesus. In those days, you could be both so easily. He's a hungry follower of Jesus. He's up on the roof praying before lunch. He's just had a vision of a sheet covered in all sorts of animals. And he said, I'll never be hungry enough to eat something that our scriptures call unclean. There you pick up there in verse 15. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up into heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. And the reason why they're staying out by the gate and yelling up to the house is because they know the world they live in. This guy is a Jew. He can't invite us into his house according to his own rules. And if, if they can smell the lunch being cooked, they know if this is lunchtime, they really can't go in there. He can't eat with them. Verse 19. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go to them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? They said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. Uh Uh-oh. He's a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. So Peter just had this vision three times that said, don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. And while he's wondering, what could that mean? Three Gentiles show up at the gate. Hmm. Gentiles are unclean. And the Holy Spirit says, go with them. And so Peter says, all right, let's see what happens. Let's invite these non-Jewish folk to stay here in this house and spend the night. And tomorrow, let's go to their place and see what this is all about. And just like that, the thing that seemed like it was not going to happen, happens. Why? Because God wills it. And when God wants the thing to happen, it happens. He is the God of the upside down. He took some weird circumstances to make it happen, but it happened. God has infinite power and infinite ways at his disposal to make the impossible possible. So shortly after my wife and I got married, my grandmother invited us all down to her house in southeast Kansas. She invited my wife. She invited me. She invited my brother. Grandma didn't know that we weren't speaking. And my grandmother was not the sort of person that you could give that information to. She would have openly mocked us. Oh, you're not speaking, are you? Did we raise two little girls up there in Kansas City? 
Yes, my grandmother was super sexist in her insults. We were just as offended as you are. But this is how she spoke to people. Oh, you're not speaking. Well, if you've got something to say, I say get together and let them have it. That's what I do. And that is what she did to everyone. So it would have been a lot more trouble to show up separately, explain to her, and then have to hear about it all weekend than to just put on a nice face and fake her way through it for two hours. So that's what we plan to do. Then my wife decides to meddle further in our awkward upside-down family dynamic. She offers my brother a ride. (laughs) And being a college student, he accepted. So this is going to be a super awkward 200, uh, well, however long it is, two hours and 20 minutes. Not that I was counting. (laughs) So there we are, riding down 71 Highway in silence. My poor wife. And all I can think about is all I did to cause this. And all I can hear in my head is the upside down way of Jesus, like the Holy Spirit badgering me. You don't confess when it's easy. Any pagan can do that. A Christian confesses when it's hard. You don't ask for forgiveness when you're pretty sure you already have it. Even Gentiles can pull that off. You ask for forgiveness when you have wronged someone, period. And then you just take what comes. So after 45 minutes or an hour in silence, I just turn around to the back seat and just blurt out this really awkward, I just want to say I treated you really horribly all the years of our childhood. And even after I became a follower of Jesus, I did not behave as a Christian toward you. Our mutual friend has already told me you will not accept any apology from me, but I must offer it anyway. And there was a long, icy silence. And then my brother said, Well, our mutual friend told me that you said you weren't sorry. And then we burst out crying, my poor wife. Uh, That's right, a supposed friend knowingly divided brothers. Why would they do that? I'll never know. I asked them, why did you do that? They said, I don't know what came over me that year. So two lessons from this story. Lesson one, if you are in your teens or 20s, at this stage of life, it seems easier when you have a conflict with someone to use an intermediary right? A go-between, tell them a little of the story, then they'll wander over and share the story and maybe something will get going. That seems easier. So lesson one is, don't do that. And here's why. Here's why. Go to them yourself because no wise person will serve as your go-between for you. No wise person will do that because they know it's not healthy. You'll say, you'll tell them that story and they'll go, oh, that sounds like you're having a real bad disagreement with them. You should go talk to them. That's what a wise person will tell you because they already know Proverbs 26, 17. Interfering in someone else's argument is as foolish as yanking a dog's ear. It's a great image. (laughs) So none of the wise people will sign up for this duty. So all you're left with is devious people. And you don't know they're devious yet because you're not tangled up in the spider's web, but they're a weaving. And a devious person will serve this role for you just to collect gossip, which then they will use for their own amusement and advantage. And some of you have already experienced this in life painfully. 
So that's a free lesson this morning, having nothing to do with Acts chapter 10. Lesson two from Acts chapter 10 is that if God wants something done, he has the power to do it. He can take a terrifying grandmother, a meddling wife, two brothers that aren't speaking, and get them all on a road trip together. He can give a vision of animals being let down on a sheet from heaven and then three Gentiles showing up at the gate. He can bring this stuff together. And then there comes this moment when the ball's in your court. Will you go where he's leading or will you resist? Will you step through the gate out of this world's upside down and into God's upside down? Because he has the power to make something happen if you'll step over where he's leading. Here's a story from Paul Deutschman. The car was crowded and there seemed to be no chance of a seat. But as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave and I slipped into the empty seat. Don't forget that. There was no seat on the train and somebody just jumped up and left. Okay. I've been living in New York long enough not to start conversations with strangers, but being a photographer, I have a peculiar habit of analyzing people's faces and I was struck by the features of the passenger on my left. He was probably in his late 30s, and when he glanced up, his eyes seemed to have a hurt expression in them. He was reading a Hungarian-language newspaper, and something prompted me to say in a Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he only answered politely, you may read it now, I'll have time later on. During the half-hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bela Paskin, a law student when World War II started. He had been put into a German labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen's, a large city in eastern Hungary. I myself knew Debrecen's quite well. We talked about it for a while. And then he told me the rest of his story. When he went to the apartment once occupied by his father, mother, brothers, and sisters, he found strangers living there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once had. It was also occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family. As he was leaving, full of sadness, a boy ran after him calling, Paskin Boxy, Paskin Boxy. That means Uncle Paskin. The child was the son of some old neighbors of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. Your whole family is dead, they told him. The Nazis took them and your wife to Auschwitz. Auschwitz was one of the worst Nazi concentration camps. Paskin gave up all hope. A few days later, too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out on foot again, stealing across border after border until he reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the United States in October 1947, just three months before I met him. All the time he'd been talking, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman whom I'd been met recently at the home of friends had also been from Debrecen's. She had been sent to Auschwitz. From there, she had been transferred to a German munitions factory. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chamber. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved me so much that I had written down her address and phone number intending to invite her to meet my family and thus help relieve the terrible emptiness in her life. It seemed impossible there could be any connection between these two people, but as I neared my station, I fumbled anxiously in my address book. 
I asked in what I hoped was a casual voice, oh, was your wife's name Maria? He turned pale. Yes, he answered. How did you know? He looked as if he were about to faint. I said, let's get off this train. I took him by the arm to the next station and led him to a phone booth. There he stood like a man in a trance while I dialed the phone number. It seemed hours before Maria Paskin answered. I later learned her room was alongside the telephone, but she was in the habit of never answering it because she had so few friends and the calls were always for someone else. This time, however, there was no one else at home, and after letting it ring for a while, she responded. When I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was, and I asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but she gave me a description. Then I asked her where she had lived in Debretons, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, Did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Yes, Bailey exclaimed. He was as white as a sheet and trembling. Try to be calm, I urged him. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. He nodded his head in mute bewilderment, his eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver, listened a moment to his wife's voice, then cried suddenly, this is Bela, this is Bela. And he managed, and he began to mumble hysterically, seeing that the poor fellow was so excited he couldn't talk coherently. I took the receiver from his shaking hand. Stay where you are, I told Maria, who also sounded hysterical. I'm sending your husband to you. We'll be there in a few minutes. Bela was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife. I go to my wife. At first I thought I'd better accompany Paskin lest the man should faint from excitement, but I decided that this was a moment in which no stranger should intrude. Putting Paskin into a taxi cab, I directed the driver to take him to Maria's address, paid the fare, and said goodbye. Bela Paskin's reunion with his wife was a moment so poignant, so electric, with suddenly released emotion that afterward neither he nor Maria could remember much about it. I remember only that when I left the phone, I walked to the mirror like a dream to see if maybe my hair had turned gray, she said later. The next thing I know, a taxi stops in front of the house. It is my husband who comes toward me. Details I cannot remember, only this I know that I was happy for the first time in many years. Even now, it's difficult to believe that it happened. We have both suffered so much. I have almost lost the capability to not be afraid. Each time my husband goes from the house, I say to myself, will anything happen to take him from me again? Her husband is confident that no horrible misfortune will ever befall them. Providence, the hand of God, has brought us together, he says simply. It was meant to be. Two people separated by war, one in Germany, one in Russia. One walks home, hears that the family's all dead, driven by grief to Paris. Immigrates to America, they wind up in New York City. He's on a train, a seat opens up and sits a photographer who speaks Hungarian and met his wife a few months earlier. When God wants a thing to happen, it will happen. He is the God of the upside down. Every time, every time God wants a thing to happen, it will happen. Of course not. Um, Look at this world. Of course not. Our scripture hints at that today also, though it might be easy to miss it. That in everything God does, there is also the role of human obedience. Peter's in Joppa, you know, remember the city? He was in, in Joppa, he has a vision to reach out beyond the world of the Jews, to share Jesus with the world of the Gentiles. 
the God of Israel is the one true God? And Peter says, yes, he will go. This has happened in Joppa before. Do you remember? Let me read you an Old Testament passage. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Now, if you've read this, you know how it turns out for Jonah. He, there's a storm at sea. He gets thrown overboard. A big fish swallows him, takes him back, spits him out near the shore. He does go to Nineveh. He tells him, oh, God's trying to reach you guys. And they repent and turn to God. And he's so mad about it because he hates them that he goes and pouts in the desert. <laughs> God was the God of the upside down. What he wanted to happen, happened, but not all of it. Because the prophet of God would not follow God in his own heart. So 500 years later, God decides it's time to drop by Joppa again and try one more time. And this time he finds a much more willing prophet in the apostle Peter. So for you and I, we must have faith that the things that seem impossible, the reconciliation that seems impossible, the thing that's been stuck upside down for so long can be turned right if God wills it to happen in God's time because he is the God of upside down things. And we must prepare our hearts that if we're called to be the one who does the hard thing, we'll go where we're led even if it's into God's upside down world where everything's going to be new and we're not going to be in control, and we don't really know what's going to happen next. You know, that's the meaning of that part of Jesus' prayer that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then comes all the, you know, just give me what I need for the day and help me not mess this up. Let us stand together. Let us pray this prayer Jesus has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus uh, leaves us with the meal, communion, if the servers want to come forward. Another demonstration that if God wills a thing to happen, it will happen. Because he came to unite us to God. And the night before we kill him, he turns that all around too. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way he took a cup, he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death till I eat and drink it with you and my father's kingdom. We remember his death. When you come up here and you tear off a piece of bread, 
You're meant to remember there are some times I have been just like those who broke the body of Christ. I was abusive towards someone. I was unforgiving towards someone. I was devious with someone. And yet Christ said, well, I'm going to turn that right around into your forgiveness. When you dip it in the cup, he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. People poured out Jesus' blood. They attacked him. It was an attack on God. And God said, I'm going to turn that around and I'm going to show you the depth of my forgiveness. Take this bread, take this cup. And when you take it into yourself, it's your acknowledgement that you did that type of stuff. Now you want to turn and follow him even so. And he's prepared to take you in and turn your life right side up again. Even with all of that, no powerful symbol than this. No powerful symbol of God's, more, more powerful symbol of God's forgiveness than this. So let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day may Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. When you're ready, come forward, tear off a piece of bread and all that means, dip it in the cup and all that means and take it into yourself and all that means. Amen. Come forward when you're ready. For our benediction today, a blessing we see over one another from the Apostle Paul. And it really reflects, I think, the scripture we got this morning. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. I truly hope whatever it is you are thinking of today that you want God to turn right side up, that very soon you see his power at work in your life. Amen. Go in peace.